My guests are diverse. Their stories are moving, outrageous and empowering, who have not only acted on their beliefs, but achieving great things and whose voices are sweeping across our nation. I'm excited for you to join me at Loud Passions and meet passionate people who are dedicated, conscious creatives, fighting for their purpose and who love this planet. Welcome to Loud Passion with me, your host, Susanna Galan. My next guest is a banker of high growth companies and has acted as an early stage advisor to new ventures making an impact. She holds an MBA from Oxford and a Forte Fellow for Women's Business Leadership and currently leads Oxford Business Alumni Network for the San Francisco Bay Area. When she's not busy her days with work, she has a passion for dance and a hamper for good smoky Scottish whiskey. She's a pace setter for newly defined leadership and I predict will be one of the most outstanding figures to watch for in the next decade, a beacon of hope for emerging business. Welcome, Ashlyn O'Connor. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. It's a pleasure. First of all, before we go in, love Scottish whiskey. I don't know about you, but my dad introduced me to Scottish whiskey. What was your introduction to Scottish whiskey? I moved to the UK when I was 18. I was at Durham University, and I... That was pretty much my intro to drinking. I went along to quite a few events that the Whiskey Appreciation Society put on, and that was my intro that I fell in love right away, which was... Oh, obviously, it's in England. It would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, so welcome, welcome, welcome. I think one of the reasons I wanted you on is because to actually get someone before, let's say, if we're looking 10 years ahead when you're out there in the public world, to me, it's gold. Get where you're at right now, because I wish often that some of the leaders that are out there, especially through history, I wish we had conversations of them like earlier so we could grasp what was going on with them and what modeled or motivated their thinking. If I were to ask you, especially with diversity, because diversity is so important right now, tell me about your background. You have an extraordinarily interesting, diverse background. Fill me in with it. Oh, very kind of you. My background, I grew up in a small town in California, in Carmel, California. I had two really great parents who always advocated for me. I come from a pretty diverse background culturally between my two parents and all the countries that their parents and grandparents came from. But I, it was, I would say in hindsight, a little bit of an unusual background growing up because I grew up in this very small town that was still outward looking and internationally minded. I grew up Irish dancing quite seriously as well too, which was an unusual thing to do in that community. And that actually... That's the Doris Day community, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Doris Day community. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood. But it's still... A lot of people who aren't familiar with the town, it's a really small place. So on the one hand... It's known internationally. There are people from all around the world who come there. But then on the other side, it's a bit like a small village. So it was a a nice place to grow up in. It was beautiful and safe. But my mind was always searching for new things to do. So I was just very curious growing up. I danced a lot growing up, which has made a huge impact on my life. If I'm right, your grandmother's what? Where was she actually born? My two grandmothers, my grandmother who lives near where I grew up, her parents were from Portugal. And then my other grandmother, her mother was from China. And then 
her father was of Scottish descent, but American. So very mixed cultural background, and then a bunch of other countries thrown into that mix as well. So it makes you a very exciting drink, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Going back to drinking, yeah. But the reason I want to bring it up is because I want you to help me out here. Carmel, or where you grew up, is a white privilege or a feeling of white privilege. It's a very affluent area. It is known for being an affluent area. The interesting thing, though, is that most people don't see that there's there's a flip side of it as well, too. So there are a lot of huge second homes that no one really lives in full time. Huge affluence there. And then there's also high rates of poverty as well, too, because most of the economy is based upon the hospitality industry. A lot of hospitality jobs are not particularly well paid, but it definitely has the era of affluence. There is some diversity there, but I would say definitely a less diverse community than, say, a major city or somewhere else. So how were you affected? Because as a young girl and white privilege, you weren't you didn't go to the Ivy Leagues. You weren't spoiled as a child. And like, it wasn't part of your destiny, was it, to just take for granted you'd be in Harvard or... Oh, not at all. And this, I was fortunate the schools are very good down there. I went to very good schools. I wouldn't say there's the same pressure as other communities that are up the road in California, like Palo Alto, where there's a lot of pressure to perform academically. And there are more gateways into the universities like Stanford or Harvard. Carmel is very much more so an artistic community, which it was an artist commune at some point. So the pathway to go and do something like that was not set in stone. I was a really good student growing up, but growing up as well too, I had some really good teachers. Like my French teacher in middle school was incredible and really encouraged my interests that I had, which were primarily international interests, which were unusual for a 12-year-old in that little town. But there, there were not a lot of role models or mentors who were highly academic, really interested in the world as a whole and different ideas in Carmel. So I sought out people outside of the community. And then amongst friends, too, growing up who were similar and in a similar place as me and interested in broader ideas and broader areas, but didn't necessarily have people in the community they could go to to further those interests. So you got your education through scholarship? My education, initially for my undergrad, I was fortunate enough that my, my family paid for it. The irony, initially I started my undergrad degree in the UK, with, but with college fees in the US were so much more than me even leaving the country <laughs> to go get educated. And I ended up finishing my degree at the University of San Francisco, which is how I got to San Francisco. But I was very fortunate in the sense that my parents worked very hard and saved their money, which is a, a privileged position in itself that they can do that. So the, the reason, because my generation, I had, oh my God, archaic teachers, very strict, nothing inspiring, nothing exciting, no mentorship, nothing. I can't even remember anything discussed where the word international came up. I grew up in an environment where we weren't conscious of it because of royals in Britain. But there's your white privilege. We just took for granted we were either royals or plebs. So what's your take on white privilege now? Like, for instance, let's say somebody is white privileged and they're really open to diversity. They're really good souls. What's happening in the world right now between the white privilege and the assumption of it? Like, where are we going to find a balance with this? 
Over the last year, we've seen everyone has been forced to confront that white privilege exists. And from my understanding of what it means as a term is, it is the existence that just by merit of being white, one has privilege and all these different facets of life that are given and one didn't work to earn them. I would say we're at the point where more people, rec- I think that there's been a big step in just recognizing that this is something that exists. Also across generations as well, because I've witnessed older generations for the first time having this conversation and figuring, oh, hey, maybe I had more of an opportunity because of these structural systems that are not fair that have been in place for centuries. But the way, the way I see white privilege and the word that has an academic came up with, I think it was decades ago, but has really become a, a key word over the last 18 months or so is intersectionality, where you look at as well as everyone has different, they have different characteristics. And based on those different characteristics, unfortunately, society has been built in a way over centuries where different characteristics are essentially on a hierarchy in terms of what gives more privilege or less privilege. And at the high at the top of that hierarchy, the way the world has been built, and I shouldn't say the world's been built, a lot of it is Western society and how it's been built. White men have been put at the top of that pyramid, and then anything beyond that, you go lower and lower on the pyramid in terms of what opportunities are granted without them being earned. And I would say that's my most simplistic understanding of white privilege in terms of the dialogue that we're having globally. And then the way I've seen it carry out, I've definitely examined my own privilege. Also, these things too, they're, they're on a, a scale as well too. There are ways in which I had privileges ready built in, for instance, that my, my parents were able to pay for my university. were not a given for everyone. But then also too, there are other areas of privilege as well too that if you grow up in a family that's extremely well-connected in business, there's an additional leg up, not only in terms of opportunities, but in terms of the belief of what's possible and acumen and all of these little micro things that add up and they can really contribute to much outsized opportunities compared to what someone else has. Or I would say too, we can't overstate as well to the privilege that's conferred in terms of what someone believes is possible for them. Because for instance, I fell into finance, but I didn't know what banking was growing up. I, I didn't have any teachers tell me what that was or share it as a career opportunity, maybe because I was female. Definitely because you're female. That's a given, I would say. But then also additionally, also, I didn't grow up in a major city, so there weren't a lot of people in finance around. So it may have also been the community didn't know much about these roles or what was possible. I view privilege as layered and a bit like a spider's web as well, too. It's not one clear-cut thing. We all have it in some particular area, and we need to be aware of it. No, I agree with you. What was it that gave you that aha moment growing up or that thought of, I can be in finance? Do you remember what inspired you? or I actually was not ever inspired young to be in finance. I was really inspired to go into politics. And politics uh-huh. was what I was most passionate about. Really oddly from a young age, from about 10 years old, is I wanted to be a campaign manager and work in politics and make a difference. And I was really interested in international politics, 
learning about the politics of Europe and the international institutions like the UN. Some of this also lined up with the time I was a very young teenager when the U.S. went into Afghanistan and Iraq, and I really got a sense what an impact the U.S. has on the U on the world, which I didn't have up until that point because right. I was very young. And I got upset just on the human level about some of the policies that were being carried out. That really was what prompted me to get interested in politics, but not just politics and domestic politics, but international politics. And then anything too that brought people together internationally, they could be economic issues as well too. I was really into economics. I had my mom start buying me copies of The Economist when I was about oh, well, 12, there you go. 12 years old. Excellent <laughs> support system. Yeah. I had great parents. My parents very internationally minded, too. They had traveled around the world and always had a lot of foreign friends, too. I didn't, very fortunately, I didn't grow up in an environment where any of that was odd. I had a lot of friends, too, who had parents from other countries and things. So you had a natural mix of different cultures mm -hmm. and were a lot more open-minded like you had a bigger sense of the world yes where, I had a big sense of the world from a really young age that's a huge difference where a lot of people in America and especially England from different places in England uh, Newcastle or say here they don't have often a bigger sense of the world they're caught up in issues or politics and they're defined by often where they come from or they feel they can't leave where they come from or don't know how. So talk to me about the women or what kind of women were you inspired by growing up or how have you, especially because you have this mind to look at, do I like someone, I, I guess on some level you might say, would I campaign for them? Talk to me about what leadership has left, what have you noticed, say, that has let you down and where you see women's leadership being redefined right now, especially at a time like this, where we're seeing first time ever a vice president female, Kamala Harris, which is amazing. Tell me about that. Tell me about the women that you were inspired by or and how that's changed for you. Well, ever since I was little, this might be a slightly odd one. Um, I really loved Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue, from when a really young age, and I loved reading fashion design. But was always so intrigued by her when I was younger because she's so strong, very powerful. She always has had a public persona where she doesn't necessarily need to be liked. That was always very attractive to me from a young age. It, you, a, a woman could be powerful, dress really well, and also have an authentic opinion as well that people didn't necessarily agree with. And I was always a really kind child, and I think some of that as well as I really wanted that ability to to say what I, I wanted to say and what I meant and was authentic to me. I liked growing up. I really, I saw her as encapsulating that. And when I was in grad school, I was fortunate enough to meet her. And I was really pleasantly surprised too that she was very authentic. And it was, that was affirming because I had admired her as a young girl. And that must have made quite an impact. Yeah. Did you let her know that you were inspired by her? I didn't at the time, but I think I, it was a small audience when she came to give a speech and we had to put our names in very ferociously to get the chance to meet her. I think it was a given that everyone who was in that audience had looked up to her. 
But it was very meaningful to meet her in person because she was very authentic, very involved in terms of what she asked about me and myself. And that was something I took away as well, too, is that one can be a really strong leader, but one still has to genuinely take an interest in other people, too. And that makes such a big difference because I've met other people and other figures over the years, too. And they often are great leaders, but I've had odd interactions and that authenticity hasn't necessarily been there in the interactions I've had. Don't you agree? Like you have to have a certain amount of inquisitiveness or curiosity. Mm -hmm. And she might have that looking at you going. The curiosity, definitely the curiosity. And I think curiosity is a key part of leadership and authentic leadership. Um, it's also just good. It's good business to be curious as well. Here's a woman of power, as you talk about, who was unafraid of not being liked, who was probably a beacon of light to women like you and a deterrent to a lot of people because she didn't encapsulate um, the etiquette, the political acceptance of that time. I mean, there are other, other teachers who use this term a lot, and I like it too, but that good girl paradigm she fell outside the good girl paradigm that she would say what she was authentic and what she wanted to say and it might not make everyone feel happy or good all the time. So talk to me now because I love looking at the generations. So you're obviously in the generation of millennial. But looking at leadership and how it's moving and changing and where you think it's going, tell me about somebody that you may have observed and that you may feel a little let down or disappointed or not necessarily seeing her relevant for the future and why. Yeah. And this is something I've written a little bit about is I've, I in my career have worked with a lot of tech companies and have been in that ecosystem either directly or on the periphery as the one that's providing financing. And we've seen over the last 10 years that one of the First of all, it's been positive. We've seen more dialogue around women's leadership, particularly in tech, over the last 10 years. Where I've had concerns is I think she's very well-intentioned, especially initially. I would say that the two top people that we heard, though, in the last decade in terms of women's tech leadership, Sheryl Sandberg, her work and her work with Lean In has been really prolific and everywhere. And then the other one we've heard a lot about in terms of women's leadership, but maybe not for definitely not for positive reasons, is Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos, I would say, we don't really need to discuss that much more. But fraudulent company, one could also argue she was able to get so far with her fraudulent company due to a level of privilege most people don't have, where she was able to drop out of Stanford. Most people don't go to Stanford. Most people don't have extra resources or parent support that would allow them to drop out and start right. a business. So getting away with it through connections. and Getting away with it through connections. A lot of other people have written as well, too. And I won't touch too much upon this. That she was an attractive young girl, too, and that may have come into how she could sell the story to a lot of her board advisors and investors were older men. Right. So there were some dynamics there that not positive, not healthy, but one can look at that story and say, with a certain amount of educational, financial, racial privilege, one can get away with fraud, at least to a certain extent. But then on the, on the other side, Cheryl Sandberg, who I do believe is well-intentioned, she came out with a book a number of years ago, Lean In, and a whole movement around it to get women to lean in, to move up more in their careers. 
And there's been a lot of other criticism from several people that it neglected to take into account the backgrounds of all different women because she's also Ivy League educated, was at the Treasury, has had opportunities that most of us will never have. Right. So we've got um, a blind spot. It is a blind spot because a lot of what she wrote in her book, a lot of people have already commented, a lot of it is based upon the ability to have enough money to pay for childcare and other things that allow working mothers to reach a certain point in their career that are honestly prohibitive for most women, especially without education. And the reality of a woman who's working a minimum wage or not very high wage job, and then a woman who is the COO at a large internet company. Those are very different lives and they have very different opportunities day to day. So the model she came up with has some nice elements to it. Some of them are effective in certain situations for certain women, but they're definitely not a one-size-fits-all. So ultimately, they're going to become redundant, or parts of it will become redundant. Parts of it will, and there will be caveats as well, and we've seen this as well over the last year caveats in terms of if you have these characteristics, this might work with you. But you have to remember as well, too, that there are other people who are not in the same position as you and won't have the opportunity to do the same things. And I think people are becoming much more aware of these inequalities and how, at least in my circle, are having more of a dialogue in terms of what can we do in the greater community to help level. Exactly. So let's say we've got these incredibly diverse women out there now hiring other women. Is anybody training them to allow for more transparency? Because they're still governed or controlled by the senior presidents that could be predominantly male. And we're still in that mix. Predominantly male or of a generation of women who were taught that they had to act like men to get to a certain point. And there's also an argument, too, that maybe that tier of women can... Actually, there was a really good Medium article someone wrote about how it's how actually white women leaders and organizations can sometimes be the worst at encouraging diversity because historically, too, women have had to toe the line and appear non-argumentative to what their male superiors had put in place. So I, I think there's more consciousness, especially among younger generations, that women's leaders should be able to be more transparent and encourage diversity overall, not just gender diversity. Yeah, there should be, a, I guess it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. What is it, if you're transparent, there should be a new normal of, okay, that's acceptable, where it might not have been 40 years something in your past should be. It's going to take time, though, because there are people, especially... It's a different story at a small company where you can make changes much more rapidly than large companies. But we still see the C-suite of large corporations is still predominantly male. And then if there is a woman, a lot of them are... This is just due to timing and where we are right now. There are still quite a few female leaders who get a lot of kudos for being female leaders but for all intents and purposes, behave exactly the same way as their white male colleagues. So I'd love to see if you, down the road, come up with a campaign or what it would say to really inspire this movement forward. You know what I mean? Because it's really hard when you've got a blind spot. The whole point of a blind spot is you can't see it. So even if it's shown to you, you don't see it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't get it eventually. 
through repetition. The other thing I want to ask you was, what would you call the next superpower? What's a superpower key thing to look for? Is it in ourselves, especially after this feeling of being under house arrest for the last year through the pandemic? What is it? Endurance? We need more focus. Like, what's the key superpower to get us up and running this year? I would say pattern recognition. And that applies to business. It applies to one's personal life. It applies to a lot of technological changes that have already come down the pipeline and are only going to continue to grow. We see it a lot with new businesses and new technology. Purely is in one area in terms of artificial intelligence. Mm, Which I'm crazy about. From my understanding, there's quite a bit of pattern recognition that goes into that piece where computers have to recognize patterns. So your superpower. But on a human level, I think a superpower is pattern recognition. But pattern recognition can be tech-related or it can be completely non-technical in one's personal life in thinking in a more creative way where you see as if the world's a spider web and all of these little disparate pieces are connected to each other and it might not be readily obvious to another person, but one can see the threads that connect people across different cultures. It can be different business. In From my day-to-day perspective, different business models that maybe one of them's in a biotech business and one of them is in a textile business. And it doesn't seem on the surface that there's anything in common, but then when you dig into them, that the, either the way they're running their business or a piece of technology they have has a lot of similarities, but in different ways. I would say pattern recognition more universally would be a superpower. It can be on a more scientific, technical standpoint, that will continue to be a huge trend. But I think as well, too, because we've been under essentially house arrest for the last year, people are really craving connection with more people, but they've had to be more creative in terms of making new connections. And I think that pattern recognition, I use it a lot in terms of thinking of, I'm constantly making introductions for other people because that's how my brain works, that this person could be useful for this person. But I often will find people who you don't think have anything in common, and then I'll find a point of commonality and introduce them, and they have loads in common, or they like find a project to work on them together. I used to play a game called Link the Dots, where you could mention anybody in, from history and throw in a, it doesn't matter if it's a, about fashion, a, a food, an object, and I could link the dots. It, there's always some connection. But I also think if we can do that, maybe we'll start respecting the similarities or maybe we'll start looking for the things that connect us closer than all the old kind of um stories or things we've been raised with that pull us apart. So it's pattern recognition. Can How would a person find information about that or maybe look into that so they could possibly apply it to their world? Is there a sort of system set up yet or is that a work in progress? I don't think there's a system. I think doing any exercise that encourages one's own creativity, everyone's creative in a different way. I would say find an act for each person to find an activity that gets them out of the left brain thinking and more into the right brain creative thinking. For me, that's dance and movement that I'll move and I'll have a different idea or see how something's connected differently. But I tend to believe that pattern recognition is less. Sim- systematic and a scientist would probably disagree. 
agree with me. But the way pattern recognition to me is actually more like that spider's web where it's not chaotic. There's a system there, but it's not a row of lines that are neat and pretty and easy to point to something and see where it's going. Um, but I would generally say pattern recognition, at least to me personally, comes when I'm doing something that's very non-logical. What is the future of women's leadership going to evolve into? What's it going to look like? Because we don't, we're not going to walk around like the Anna Wintour's because that's from a different time period. I believe that it's going to become flatter in a sense. And I don't know if flat is necessarily the right term, but I believe there's going to be more of a mentorship model, but not even mentorship in the sense that we've ha- had historically thought of it, where it's someone who's older who shares advice and essentially tells a younger person what to do to get where they got. That's blown out the window because systems are completely different and what worked for earlier generations doesn't necessarily work for younger generations. You just look at companies don't have the same loyalty to employees. Economic systems are completely different. The level of education that companies expect of people is much higher than it was in the past. And leadership's different too, even though I would say, even though I said earlier, it hasn't shifted entirely maybe where we want it to be. It's still different than where it was 50 years ago. I see women's leadership going into a area where there's more dialogue between all parties as well, and that there's more active mentorship with a different definition, which is it's a sharing of ideas of anyone who can be useful to a person and really truly has their best interest at heart and wants the best of them. I've witnessed that as well, too, where I have people who are younger than me I consider mentors or people who are not, who are great people, great contacts I have, but they're not necessarily my business contacts, but support me and help and stretch me to think in different ways or consider things that are, I wouldn't even they might consider help me consider my blind spots in ways that I wouldn't be able to see for myself and that someone with a similar background as me or in a similar position wouldn't see either. I still see there a place for women's leadership in a more traditional sense of mentoring other people who are up and coming. I've definitely had amazing mentors, female and male mentors in my life, one of whom was the first boss I had. One of them is the mother of my really good friend whose name's Sarah, always encouraged me to think in different ways, even just through informal chats. But I I would say there's a lot to be determined. We have to see women's business leadership is going to be, I think, predicated on the, how leadership as a whole changes. So communication's a big one. It's going to be the key, like finding a mutual ground. Yeah, finding a mutual ground. I think we're going to have to wait some time, though, too, just with generational shifts in terms of when the people who are in charge of large businesses right now start to retire in a new generation who thinks entirely different and has grown up differently. The generational stuff is we can't understate that. And I think that's going to open a lot of doors to do things differently. Because it's been limited in some organizations. New organizations, it's a clean slate and people can try different methods and things. Big companies that have been around 100 plus years, it's harder to make changes. I see it. It has to hit a precipice. Yeah. I just see these giant waves hitting a rock and and, and they're just not getting over that rock. And they keep coming back and crashing up against the rock. And then suddenly one day that wave just hits it right over 
And I think that when you can see the or the rock starts to erode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for your science. So that says to me what we're looking at now is in even in politics and in our world those extremes that and eventually are going to find middle ground. They are going to get to move forward over in time. I just think you're right. It's to do with time. One very teeny last question, because I I'm very instinctual. I love using my intuition in finance. Where does intuition apply to you? Is it when you feel something's off, or when you intuitively know something's right? Do you find that part of your instinct emerges at times? Intuition is key.、Um, I would say both when something's off or something is really right. Off is probably the easiest one, and I think if you spoke to most people in finance, they maybe don't have the word for it, or maybe wouldn't necessarily use the word intuition. But I would say that's pretty widespread. Finding out when a situation's off, or maybe one's talking to a company and it feels a bit off, like a gut hit, like a gut hit. They said everything right in that meeting, but why do I not feel that the deal's going to go through? I've definitely had that. It's. On the surface, everyone said everything right. They've smiled. It's been pleasant, and then, but I've had a, that niggling sense of, but I don't think this deal's going to get done. And then the particular instance I'm thinking of, the company came back and said, "Oh yeah, we were talking to another financier, and we're going to go with their term sheet the next week." So I would say intuition is a key part. Up until the pandemic, too, we were still an industry by and large that did everything face to face. And reading body language and all of those factors that go into intuition always played a really key part. Banking, they always talk about a tenant of just banking overall and in credit worthiness of companies. If you're going to extend debt, is reading the character of someone. And we could have a longer conversation about how there's inherent bias and people bring their inherent bias to these conversations, and maybe there it often can be discriminatory. But taking that as a blank slate, if someone's character brings something up in an intuitive way that maybe there's something that I'm not being told right now, that is definitely used day in and day out and find also based off of prior experience because intuition too is accumulative.、Mm-hmm. And then on the the more positive side, that when I've had instances as well too, maybe a company doesn't look like. It's the biggest or most exciting company, or there's an opportunity. But all my conversations have gone, and the business model makes sense. And it there's a gut hit as well too that this could work out, and it's encouraged me to do that little bit of extra work, or dig in a little bit more, or think about it in a different way. I'd say intuition also in finance. Yeah, because when something feels like it's gonna be right, that's intuitive. When something feels off, that's a gut, <laughs> and they they go hand in hand. They're related. So you often get a gut hit and then an intuitive hit. So it's most people can't work it out because it can happen simultaneously. But so thank you so much. I said it before, and I'll say it again. You're a beacon of hope for emerging business. Thank you so much, Ashlyn O'Connor, for being part of. Anytime intuition. Thank you so much. So thank you very much, Ashlyn. It's a real pleasure. I always want to thank my guests for the extraordinary work they create and share with us. If you're looking to turn up your passion with love and career, I would love to hear from you. You can find me at susannagalan.com. So join me next time at Loud Passions. 
where power and passion are waiting just to inspire you. Thank you.